HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit nettlemeadowcheeseandspirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, meadowcheeseandspirits.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Allison Roman, former senior food editor, Bon App, mm-hmm. BuzzFeed Food. That's right. And you were a milkmaid at some point. But let's, let's define <laughs> that further. Because when you say that out of context, um, yeah. that seems a little more pastoral, like Midwest. Right. I'm surprised you actually know that term. I felt like that was a little inside baseball. Really? Of you. Yeah. But well, at Milk Bar, Momofuku Milk Bar, Christina Tosi called everyone uh, her little milkmaids. Really? I, that, I guess it was something of legend. Yeah. You know, I, I heard wisps of it. Right. And once a milkmaid, always a milkmaid. Yeah. I yeah. Think. It is a tight crew. <laughs> it is a tight crew. I'm still tight, I'm glad to say, with most of them. Yeah. So. Excellent. Well, I mean, from that milkmaid, the sweeter things in life, uh, most of your cooking early on seemed to be towards that, you know, baking and you know, less savory. Yes. I was a pastry chef. Yeah. Um, in another life. Uh, like work in the line, production, all that stuff. Like in a restaurant, people are like, oh, you worked in a restaurant. Yes, for seven years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. we were talking before. Mm-hmm. It's something that feels odd to be removed from, but it's always a part of you. And you walk through a restaurant and you say things like behind. Yes. Uh, you FIFO system out. Right. I mean, what, what are the traits that have carried over? Because now you're a creative, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is... I think you're a creative even when you're in a kitchen, yeah, definitely. And yeah. I was lucky enough to work for people... Um, 
you know, sort of the mentors that I had were hyper, hyper creative people and really instilled like, you know, you can teach anyone a technique, but if you're not sort of an innately creative person, this might not be the right field for you. You know, you're not a robot. That's a thing. I think a lot of people think about, you know, line cooks, et cetera, where it's more than just executing somebody else's vision. You kind of have to be a little bit more creative, be that, you know, in the problem solving department or, you know coming up with menu items. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you even started in creative writing, uh, not to use that, that term creative there, but I mean, your, your train of thought. Right. Which no one will ever read anything that I've ever written before the age of 20. Okay. I was about to say, you do have a book coming out. You do realize people are going to read that. Yes. Well, I'd like to think that I've come a long way, but we'll see. I'm sure in 10 years I'll think the same. Yeah. But I mean, when you were kind of dealing with creative writing, um, do you think that somehow influenced how you thought about food? Um, hard to say. I think that the part about food that I really loved was that it was a, a task that I could start and then finish, which, you know, when it comes to school and, and writing and all these things, and when you're young, it's difficult to have direction. But um, somebody says, peel all of these oranges and then slice the rind, and it's like 20 quarts of it. You have a task to do for, you know, two hours or so. So it's a way to compartmentalize your brain that I really kind of was drawn to. I liked having a task and then finishing it. I liked having service and then finishing it. You go home, and then it's a new day. You know, it's not like these looming tasks that, you know, now we sort of are burdened with. I mean, I know you're in the middle of a couple books yourself, so you understand that it's, you know, you could stop for the day, but it's still there. Whereas you work in a restaurant, and oftentimes, you know, the biggest push, then you clean up, and it's like nothing, nothing ever happened. It's yeah. kind of nice. <laughs> it's kind of like a goldfish yeah. swimming around the bowl, it's a seeing sweet the castle. Goldfish, yeah. And then he dies, and then you, you know, bury it in the toilet. Way, and... way to make that morose. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you know, doing these, I wouldn't call them mundane, but definitely rote tasks, it's kind of like receiving a gold star. You know, mm-hmm. you, there's an accomplishment there, and then there's an accreditation of that accomplishment. Right. Um, but then, like you said, you know, it gets reset or it stops at a point. Right. And, and, what I found really interesting lately is about how, and I'm going to parse it out, creatives, mm-hmm. you know, people that work in food media, there's a longevity there that right. isn't always the same longevity that happens in a restaurant. I mean, dishes yeah. live forever, mm-hmm. you know, certain ones. Um, but to be in the position you are, do you feel like you can have a much broader influence on how people cook and look at food than you ever did as a pastry chef? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the huge reasons I left the restaurant industry. It wasn't I mean, yes, the long hours and late nights were intense, but, you know, not to say that I don't do that occasionally now. Um, but it really was more just the fact that you have a lot better of an opportunity to sort of uh, influence the way people are actually cooking at home and teaching them something rather than just feeding them. You know, I can have people over to my apartment and feed them, and that's one thing. But to have somebody say, I read this recipe, and now it's the only thing I make whenever people come over or I've made this, you know, raspberry ricotta cake 40 times. And, you know, to have that become a part of their life and their repertoire is, is highly impactful, I think. And people, you know, if they, you know, cook enough recipes that I make and they work, then they'll trust me. And it becomes kind of like this go-to point, which is something that is like my goal ultimately of people to like, know understand that if I've written a recipe that it'll work, it'll taste good, it'll look great. And that impact lasts a lot longer than going to a restaurant and eating one meal because, then you go back to that restaurant, someone's having an off night, it's not as good, and you're like, That's re- that restaurant's terrible, we're never going back. <laughs> you're not following their recipe. Exactly, or a new, better, cooler restaurant opens up and no one goes to your restaurant anymore. Yeah. Which, you know. 
I mean, did you ever have feedback as a pastry chef in your restaurant? Did you ever hear from the diners? Was there any, any interaction, you know, yeah. about... Occasionally, and I think I really fed off of that, um, but there's really just not enough mm-hmm. because you're dealing with, you know, front of house, back of house dynamics, and it depends on the kinds of restaurants. I worked in one that was a little bit more fine dining, and, you know, they would be like, oh, table, whatever, you know, loves the, you know, chocolate tart. I don't, I don't know that I ever made a chocolate tart, but... Um, you know, and you never know what they look like. That's it. The conversation ends. You don't get to explain how you made it. You don't get to say, oh, well, if you love the filling, you can actually make this at home. It's super easy. Yeah. Or like, here's a trick. Or kind of just to get to explain, you know, where your creativity is coming from. To eat something and be like, that's delicious. Yeah, I always felt this weird detachment that you were happy overseeing clean plates. Mm-hmm. Like you'd see something, well, not come back in that sense. And you'd be like, oh, they liked it. But, I mean, it was devoid of anything that you had done. And it just was this weird sense of, like, I guess they liked it. I mean, they ate it. It just started feeling a little empty after a while. After, you know, six or seven years, I began to feel like, well, who am I feeding? Who are these people? Are they enjoying it? Like, what's where's the conversation going? It sort of began and ended when the plate left the window. And the most fun I had was, you know interacting with the people that I was getting produce from because that was at least a conversation that you were having and you get to tell stories and interact and you build these relationships. But when you're at the restaurant, it's kind of a lonely process of feeding strangers, which now I get to, I mean, thanks to things like social media, um, you get to interact with the people that are actually cooking and eating your food, which is really cool and super gratifying. Let's talk about these milkmaids (laughs) because I also feel like there was such a great community of minds there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have those kind of discussions? Did you get to interact with um, not only the creatives in the kitchen there, but, you know, uh, customers in in a way that you felt was fulfilling? Um, Not so much the customers because we worked mostly when I started um, Milk Bar was still in the the East Village location where Booker and Dax is now. and then we moved to a commissary. So we were a little bit removed from the customer experience. This was before they put a storefront in that Williamsburg location. But the kitchen was super tight, and I made some really great friends there. And, you know, we spent 12 to 16 day, hours a day together because we would start work super early and then, you know, inevitably go out drinking at the Commodore next door. And we never got sick of each other, for yeah. better or for worse. But we spent a lot of time together, and a lot of it was talking about food and, you know, the general environment. And it was a really cool uh, time and place because it was all women, basically. And it was the only place I had worked like that because coming from restaurant kitchens, I was typically the only woman. So it was almost like I never was in a sorority in college. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it was sort of had that. I mean, I imagined to maybe be the coolest sorority that anyone could ever be in. It was a really tight-knit group of people and um, super familial. And it was great. It was like a very good, solid community. Yeah. A hell of a sorority to be in, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was funny. I think I've been in the Commodore uh, when the milkmaids kind of venture out of the commissary into drinking mode. Yeah. Um, and... It feels more like the Lizzie's from, um, what is that movie? Uh, uh, the Gangs of New York? No. Um, it, it, but it felt like this 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 tough brood of, yeah. do I dare say, broads, um, just came in there and they owned it. Yeah. Because they had just owned everything they had done prior to that. Yeah. Christina Tosi did a really excellent job of hiring really strong, independent, amazing women. Yeah. So, so how do you take those experiences, the, the, the culmination of everything you had done and mm-hmm. move to editorial, move to a magazine where 
you know, the, the, the way you interact and, and the way you output ideas is, is completely different. Right. Yeah. It was definitely a bit of an adjustment. Um, when I started at Bon Appetit, I was a freelancer. So I was, you know, coming in and it was sort of the mentality I had when I first started cooking in restaurants, which is I'll do whatever, you know, I will test any recipe a hundred times if you need me to, I'll help somebody else test their recipe. I will stand around until you give me something to do. Um, but it was sort of like this, it was like starting over again because I had these base level skills that I had acquired from cooking professionally, but it was an entirely new job that I had to learn every skill for. Um, and this was before I even started, you know, really editing and writing for that place. Like I remember the, one of the first things I ever wrote for them was like so hilariously overwrought and, and genuinely bad. <laughs> it was like, I had to write, you know, 90 words about a swizzle stick and I, just packed it full of the dumbest words yeah. that I thought were super impressive I mean, at the time. All, all alliteration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just, you know, what I thought of as magazine. And I remember my boss at the time, Hunter Lewis was like, you have to, he's like, you're have a great voice when you speak, just write that way. And I had to like, kind of shake everything off and be like, right. Okay. I know this. And you kind of have to relearn. Um, because after cooking professionally, I, I kind of took a hiatus from writing, even though that was my focus and something I had always done growing up. I just hadn't done it in so long and forgot to flex those muscles yeah. and, and kind of uh, forgot that that's the most important part. So, I mean, aside from that, just, you know, the process of recipe testing and then the process of creating ideas for a magazine, it's just there's so many moving parts and everything requires like a kind of reset of what you think you know from coming from a restaurant. I mean, let's talk about the basics because I watched a video of you making a French omelet. Oh, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, it seems like something most people who can cook can do, mm-hmm. but the complexity of doing something as, as rudimentary as that, right. um, it's, it's scary sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like how do, how do you dispel that fear? Uh, from home cooks, you mean? Yeah. I mean, even restaurants cooks, I mean, try to make that yeah. same perfect omelet. Well, uh, to be clear, I did cry several times <laughs> during the making of that omelet yeah. and not in that specific video. Um, but before that it was, it was a really dark time that day in the omelet test kitchen for me Um, because it was really hard and you follow someone else's instructions and you're like this just isn't right and you really do that's like a good example of having to make something you know 20 times before you can then spell out to somebody else okay like here are all the mistakes I made and here's everything that will go wrong when you try and make this omelet and then here's what you can do to make it better or you know it might happen to you one or two times don't worry it happens to everyone kind of just coaxing uh the fear out of people and addressing it head on and be like this is going to be scary you might fuck it up but you know what you're gonna you're gonna get it eventually I mean, and I, what were and what are your fears now I oh mean, god i, I don't it, mean i don't mean like <laughs> how in, much time in, do you yeah. have <laughs> but in, in a kitchen um what what do you feel like you still can't do or you're not strong at that you want to get better at mm. um god I'm not great at like perfect desserts, like frosting things perfectly or, you know, like working with like royal icing in a beautiful, precise, perfect way. Like, I don't if you've ever seen a dessert that I make, it has like this like cool, messy look that maybe people think is intentional. It's not. (laughs) I really just don't know what I'm doing. Um, But I think that's appealing to some people that maybe make them feel like, oh, I can make that. That doesn't look so perfect. But um, when when, uh, you know, given the task of like doing something super pristine or super precise. It's just not one of my strong suits. Um, that, and I never learned how to make like really dope bread or like viennoiserie and stuff like that, which maybe I will do yeah. one day. I mean, I think that's part of that perfection thing, trying to attain it because 
um, it, it's a replicable thing, mm-hmm. and you, and you want to make it the same way. But right. I don't know. I, I bake bread, and I like the rough edges of it. Yeah, I, I, I like the more rough edges. Yeah, Even those rough edges. But, well, people think that because I was a pastry chef that I have this, you know, because you know, all pastry chefs have a, you know, super precise. Uh, clean and meticulous and they're super anal about you know measuring and it's a real science and all that stuff and that does none of those words describe me i am definitely a like savory cook mentality but everyone that ever taught me desserts or pastry also had that mentality so it was like this isn't different than cooking you know like you don't measure the berries to the sugar to make a sauce you taste and do they need more sugar do they need more acid which is why the whole bread thing which like really is you know there are a lot of amazing super talented bakers that are like beautiful artists and they riff on stuff and it comes out wonderfully i i'm a little nervous in that department but um yeah that like super meticulous and uh you know type a kind of pastry baking situation is maybe not my strong you know i've always thought of it as an action reaction thing Mm -hmm. with um pastry and baking if you react, you don't even see those results for another X amount of hours. It, it's it just like a, a oh, well, yes. in, you know, elongated timeline of, of, you know, stimuli. Yeah, and that probably is the exact reason why I'm terrible at it, because I have zero patience <laughs> in every aspect of my life. And I'm the person who will, you know, even to this day, like even to this day, which is insane to me, I will try and take a cake out of the oven before it's ready. I will try and invert it before it's ready. I will cut into it before it's ready. It's it. it I, I know better. I definitely know better. And I and yet, you know, and yet. Well, you're going to have a little patience because we're going to take a <laughs> quick break. And uh, when we come back more with Allison Roman, you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Ann Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org here with Allison Roman. And, you know, we're, we're going to start talking about your book, Dining In. Yes. Um, but before that, 
you wrote like a, a smaller cookbook mm-hmm. with short stack editions. I did. Uh, all about lemons, which you say is your favorite ingredient. Still, yeah. yeah. Why is that? Is it a LA thing having one of those in your backyard? And- Probably has something to do with it. Um, it's just it's the it's like my desert island ingredient. You know, I I cook. I almost never cook without lemons. I yeah. was actually once told by somebody that I had to stop putting lemons in everything. <laughs> um, which I will never do. Um, no, it, it's the, I think, the most versatile, wonderful ingredient that there is. You can do so much with it. It like gives you everything you need in a dish. If, if it's not right, it probably needs lemon or salt. And salt wasn't an option for, for a short <laughs> stack, so I went with lemons. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this lemon coconut tea cake, too, because okay. I've brought that into my repertoire. Yes. And it's, it's one of few things that I can bake uh, you know, effortlessly and yes. almost flawlessly every time. Yeah. Um, Let's, let's go from conception to testing okay. to, you know, just the totality of how amazing that thing is. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's funny. I never th- thought I'd have to talk about this one specific cake so much, but turns out you are not alone. And almost everyone I know has baked it and continues to do so. And I don't want to, like, you know, hype it up too much because somebody might bake it and be like, what? It's a cake. Like, you know, I get it. But um, I think the beauty of it is... Um, sort of in its simplicity and it's a one bowl situation. I'm an extremely lazy, uh, baker. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a lazy person, but I'm a lazy baker <laughs> and, um, breaking out my kitchen aid requires like somebody's birthday, somebody's, you know, new baby, some, some, you know, massive celebration. I'm not going to just bust that out for like a Sunday tea. Not that I've ever hosted a Sunday <laughs> tea, but if I were, I doubt I'd break out the kitchen aid mixer. Um, so I always look for ways to kind of get the result that you want with the least amount of effort. And that cake is a really great example, um, not just of how great lemons can be when you use a ton of them and do the things like rubbing it with the sugar, which I say in the head note, I think, like, is not an annoying thing I'm asking you to do because I read it somewhere. It's because I truly believe it makes you uh, makes the cake better. So I don't know. I think that the combination of that plus, you know, the toasted coconut on top and baking it in a loaf pan, which probably everybody has, makes it a thing that you can bake probably any time. Yeah. I mean, with very little skill. Not to say that you have little skill. I'm saying. No, you like, can in that aspect. <laughs> I do. And um, it's always, I made souffles for the first time. Really. Oh, wow. You are um, way, you are beyond lemon tea cake. You're yeah. like, I made a souffle. So the first one came out and I was still proud of it. And then the second ones were just like, Immaculate, and I get so excited over. And I mean, I can do pretty complex, you know, right. uh, even like you know, meat fabrication, charcuterie, you know, molecular gastronomy. Yeah, but I can't do a souffle. Right. And then when I accomplish that, it what sorcery felt big souffle, and then yeah. like a tea cake felt big to me. Hmm. Um, but you've done all the work. <laughs> That's true. I did do all the work, and and the best part about it is that every time someone takes a picture of this cake it looks the same everybody's yeah. looks the same and that brings me so much joy because you know not to say that if they looked different that wouldn't be also great but to know that the recipe works and it works for everyone in everyone's oven and everyone's cake mold and in everyone's skill level brings me so much joy and i want to kind of create recipes exactly like that all the time you know i mean this brings me to buzzfeed food because the phenomenon there is that I mean, it, it is a viral thing. You post something on there, and I mean, it's not a couple thousand people. Look, it's millions upon millions. Right, yeah. And the expectation is that they're all doing the same thing, experiencing it in the same way, right. or the output will be very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's your cookbook, where you know you're trying to cater towards this large audience, um, 
but you're also trying to be able to uh, replicate recipes, you know, have them so precise, but with latitude. I mean, like, so how do you play to such a large crowd in those two different forms? Um, well, for the book, it's really just about, you know, it's like my perspective on cooking. It's, it's the way that I like to cook. It's the way that I think you should also be cooking. It's my very opinionated, um, guide to how to make dinner basically. Um, and it's because I, I think that, you know, in my smallish, apartment with I don't own a blender I don't own a food processor I have very limited equipment actually um, limited space and I feel like if I can do it you can do it Um, and if it seems like it's tricky or hard I want to walk you through that so it's not about appealing to everyone because I know that I won't Um, ideally I would (laughs) ideally everyone would love everything I make ever forever always but um, we'll see about that and um, but I think just you know trying to be ambitious but not uh alienating you know i don't want and this is like the same thing with what makes a really great restaurant i think and chefs you know you want to create food that people actually want to eat it's one thing to sort of use these super cool weird ingredients in every recipe you make because you know what they are and you know how to use them and that's super cool but it's another thing to realize that the people that are going to make these recipes might not have access to those things or might not want to go to the specialty store or wait two days for their Amazon order to come. So it's about maximizing, you know, what technique I do have with my knowledge of what I think people actually want to eat and what are actually going to cook and understanding that they're, you know, my biggest fear with this cookbook, (laughs) which I'm sure anyone who's written one can relate to is I, you know, I go back and forth. Oh my God, it's too boring. These recipes are too boring. They're too safe. They're too basic. And then I go, Oh my God, they're too complicated. Who's going to make this? Like who owns this kind of pan, you know, and finding that sweet spot and like, you know, staying within that, you know, and having some, some wiggle room on either side to know that like, yes, this is a very basic thing. And for the 50 people that had never heard of this before, congratulations. Now you do. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, letting people know up front, these are going to be a little bit more ambitious, maybe save this for a special occasion, but it's still not going to be super difficult. So trying to cover all the bases, but staying in like this middle ground of like what I think is doable and also interesting at the same time. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're overthinking it because <laughs> That's it's so weird. I never do that. Yeah. <laughs> I never overthink anything. It's um, super weird. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit because I have watched that Rachel Ray video oh. <laughs> a number of times. Oh yeah. Um, tell me about it. <laughs> but, I mean, talk about, uh, taking something simple and transforming it and making it transportive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made booby. <laughs> Whoa. Hello. <laughs> you, well, believe me, that show threw me off too. Yeah. Uh, you oh, made yeah. boozy popsicles. I did. Uh, Gin yeah. and tonic, uh, spicy grapefruit margarita, mm-hmm. which still it's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, they're pretty good. The layers and the elements that 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 you play with are so attainable. Right. I mean, you're making a margarita, freezing it, and then the chili salt just put it over the top. And yeah. You, you could see in Rachel Ray's reaction. She really she was into so that. Too. I yeah. Her and I. We got we have some unfinished business. We're gonna we have an, a hang sesh. Yeah, she yeah. me. But that's you know an example too of that audience is way larger than anything I've ever dealt with. And thinking like especially living in any major city, you think oh grapefruit margarita, everyone's heard of that. And then you realize oh wait, there's actually a huge portion of our population that has never heard of that and is going to be impressed by it. So you know. Or the Aperol Spritz, or the White right. Russian, or the you know gin and yeah. tonic, even, or yeah. just thinking to manipulate that into a, a boozy mm-hmm. popsicle. Yeah, I mean that that's the ingenuity that you kind of. I don't know. You have to play. You think it's benign sometimes, but you have right. to you know use that to be able to figure out these amazing recipes that have this 
life, this longevity. You yeah. Know, um, they, they need to be cool and fun now, but also need to be cool and fun in five years. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in writing a cookbook, too, uh, at least two years from now. Oh, God. I know. The anxiety about that. I'm like, this is the coolest ingredient now. And in two years, people will be like, oh, so lame. Yeah. I can't believe she's using sumac. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you have rules for yourself in writing this cookbook? Um, are there things that you won't do, won't touch, won't say? Um, my only rules are if I don't like them or if I don't cook them, I'm not going to put them in my book. And I will say as much. I have a few essays in the book as well. Um one of them about rice. I just don't like rice that much. I think it's huh. fine. I think it's like a thing you eat when you're sick. Yeah. You know, I'd rather not give you a recipe for it because I think it's boring. Um, same thing with like, you know, I don't love sweet potatoes. So probably not going to cook with them in my book. Um, that's a, that's a lie. Actually, there's one sweet potato recipe, which I will say <laughs> is the only type of sweet potato recipe that, that I can abide. Um, in testing a lot of the recipes that I thought I was going to put in, I realized, oh, I don't like beets that much. I don't know if you're noticing a through line, but I don't like sweet vegetables. But, um, yeah, I was like, oh, then I don't need to put three beet recipes because I think other people like beets. I don't need to people please because at the end of the day, I'm not going to please everyone. So what I need to do is make a collection of recipes that I'm super pleased with. And the litmus test for that is sort of as I'm testing these, do I want to eat this for lunch? Do I want to eat this for dinner? Do I want to serve it to my friends? And if the answer is no to any of those questions, then I have to consider why is the recipe even in the book and then go from there. And then spend, you know, several sleepless nights wondering why I ever thought I needed three beet recipes. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that's what it is. You, it has to be a book about you. Right. Because if you don't stand behind these things, it's, it's, it's very hard to stand up there and kind of, yeah. you know, back them. Yeah. And that's the thing is I will never, in any recipe I ever write, I will never tell you to do anything that I wouldn't happily do myself. Which means like... Am I going to ask you to use like three skillets for this one dish or, you know, do it eight days in advance? Probably not because I will never do that. So, you know, trusting my, my judgment is a huge part of like saying yes to, you know, cooking through this book with me, I guess. Um, which, you know, don't get too excited. It doesn't come out for another year and a half, but, um, yeah. So sort of, you know, is this something that I would actually make? Is this something my mom will actually make? Is this, you know, something that I would say yes to? Cause a lot of times I read a recipe and I'm like, no way in hell am I doing that. Or I'm sure I can do this in half the steps. Or, you know, I'm always trying to figure out ways to cut, you know, where needed without being superfluous. Yeah. So and in, in this book, you will be the most efficient, laziest recipe person we've ever met. No. Well, <laughs> in, in a very inspiring and elegant and uh, honest way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Only only lazy in the sense uh, that's oh God, that's such a bad word. We have to figure out a different word. Um, effortless. Let's let's go there. Let's say that. <laughs> there it is. I'm calling it highly cookable food. You know, things that you're actually able to cook, that you actually want to cook, that you actually want to eat. Well, I'm willing to have that patience and wait the year and a half. <laughs> and congratulations on going through the process. Thank and you. many more sleepless nights. Yes. Allison Roman, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big shout out to Cookies for the Music, David and Malcolm Engineering. And, of course... We cannot forget Jack Inslee, whose last day it is after I don't even know how many years. It just seemed like you were born in this place. <laughs> Thank you, Jack, for everything. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.